Fired Up show starts right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I host the podcast each week as we talk about things going on in the political system here in the United States of America. Uh, first and foremost, welcome everyone. Welcome into Black History Month as we look at, think about, and celebrate the contributions of African Americans to the history and prosperity of this country. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in context with some other stories we're talking about on this show. But for right now, I just want everybody to take a moment and think about the contributions that have been made, not just by African Americans in this country, but by minorities in general. Uh, every uh, immigrant group that has come to this country has contributed to its greatness, and we need to celebrate and recognize that uh, every day, not just in the particular months in which we happen to celebrate uh, the heritage. So that being said, uh, let's get into the show. As always, we're going to start off with covering where we are with the COVID situation here in this country. And we're up at 102.6 million cases, uh, 100, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 102 million cases, uh, let me get my numbers straight, 1.11 million people have passed away from the disease, and 665.5 million people have been vaccinated, uh, either one dose or two doses, against the disease. Uh, so, you know, we are currently facing, as we'll talk about in a second, uh, the latest variant in the COVID cycle that is moving through the country. And, you know, it is resurfacing uh, our concerns about what we need to do to protect ourselves, our loved ones, our community uh, from the spread of this disease uh, as we are now into the third year of this uh, pandemic across the United States uh, and in broader sense around the world. So I uh, wanted to bring a few facts about the current variant of the COVID-19 uh, case. And we've talked about this already. Uh, it is uh, called the XBB.1.5 variant. And according to medical and scientific experts, uh, it's the most contagious uh, variation of the SARS-CoV-2 variant uh, currently in circulation. And it, it's important to note that a key word there is most contagious. Uh, global healthcare officials have labeled uh, this as a subvariant that is currently responsible for the bulk of COVID-19 cases being reported. Uh, and it is the most contagious Omicron mutation that they've seen to date. Uh, this XBB 1.1.5 variant, which uh, has been given the nickname the Kraken strain, is thought to be about five times more contagious than earlier Omicron strains and have characteristics that allow it to spread easier among both vaccinated and recently recovered individuals common symptoms that we see with this variant uh, can be easily dismissed as you know, seasonal illness or the flu, uh, but data is suggesting that flu infections are in fact declining, which you know, should tell us that we need to treat these symptoms seriously because they could be more than just your everyday garden variety flu or whatever version of that illness is going around the country. Uh, so some of the things you should be on the lookout for, uh, being sick in general, uh, experiencing a chronic cough, an elevated fever, sore throat or a runny nose, uh, all should be indicators that you should get a COVID test to ensure that you're not contagious. Uh, again, according to the experts, this is the most contagious variant uh, currently in circulation and you know, it, it is rapidly becoming the primary strain in new COVID-19 cases currently in the United States. And it uh, continues to grow. 
what we're seeing is, as I look past the, the numbers that we collect and present to you uh, each week on the show, it's growing by some uh, 300 to 350,000 cases a week, or about 43 to 44,000 cases a day here in this country. So that, that is something serious that we need to be concerned about. So make sure you're taking care of yourselves. Wear your mask when you need to. Practice your social distancing. You know, do all of the things that have become sort of the uh, de rigueur that we have to follow uh, as we deal with the COVID pandemic. So we will keep you posted on any updates. And uh, as always, make sure you keep it locked here uh, on Fired Up and on uh, WJMS Media in general for the latest updates in all variety of news and information and entertainment uh, that we can bring to you. Another quick point uh, that I want to bring and uh, bring a shout out to our, our founder and owner, uh, Jamie, a.k.a. Jams. She was invited to be part of a presentation um, this uh, in the, within the past week, 10 days, with the Congressional Black Caucus uh, in Washington. And uh, there is a, uh, uh, a clip that she has posted to TikTok. I will try and get the web address for it or save it as a uh, web file and post it to the Facebook page for the Fired Up Show. Uh, you can also grab it from the WJMS Media website, and it's WJMSRadio.com, and uh, check her out. Um, she is a, an extremely uh, impressive speecher, speaker. She gave a marvelous presentation, uh, and of course, you know, as the leader of our WJMS family, we are all very proud of her. And uh, I have to say that, you know, as her father, I stand head and shoulders above that. Um, she just never ceases to amaze and impress me. So great job, Ms. CEO. We appreciate you. We appreciate you, you working so hard to get your message out there and keep up the good work. We're back. We're in back of you and supporting you 150 percent. All right, let's uh, let's move on from that. Uh, we've got a, a few things to talk about on this show. Uh, it's been a busy week uh, politically here in this country. Some of the highlights um, in, in what's been happening, uh, particularly coming out of the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, along a party line vote uh, this week, uh, the House voted to remove uh, Representative Ilhan Omar from her seat on the on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which is one of the uh, most powerful committees in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, by the way, there are a total of 27 committees uh, that work uh, in the House, which is where the representatives actually get a lot of the work of uh, finding out information and, and fact-finding, crafting the bills that come to the floor uh, and other duties. But there are some that are, are considered more influential than others. Foreign affairs is one, ways and means is another, and the, the rules committee, uh, just to name a few. Uh, so of the 27 committees, so the number and size of these 27 current committees uh, is determined by the House Steering Committee, uh, and there are three types of committees that typically are created, although others may be created uh, for special purposes and so forth. Uh, but the three types of committees uh, typically found in the House of Representatives are, uh, one is known as a standing committee, and these are permanent committees, uh, and their jurisdictions identified and set out in the House rules. Then there's a type called select committees, which are created by a resolution. So that is, they are voted on by the entire uh, House. And uh, their purpose is typically to conduct investigations or consider measures usually on a specific topic. And uh, they are not renewed on a permanent basis with the note 
notable exception uh, of the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, which carries over from term to term. And then the third type is what are called joint committees. And these are committees that uh, feature not only House members, but Senate members. And uh, they, can t they typically conduct studies rather than consider measures. So a joint committee uh, might be formed to uh, study or investigate a particular topic that is then referred back to both sides of the legislative branch for uh, consideration as bills are being created. Um, all of these are set up uh, through the steering committee of the House, which is you know, its own type of uh, uh, permanent standing committee that their job is to determine how many committees it's gonna be, who's gonna be the chair, you know, how many members uh, each committee will have. So inside that framework, um, you have the Foreign Affairs Committee, which is uh, one of the more uh, powerful committees in the Senate. I mean, sorry, in the House, forgive me. And, you know, it is from this committee that Representative uh, Ilhan, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota was removed. Now, she was removed because of some statements she made back in 2019 that uh, were considered by uh, many Republicans and conservatives uh, to be anti-Semitic and for which she did apologize um, and um, became a, that became a sore spot for Republicans. And they vowed at the time that if they you know, came to power in the House, that one of the first things they would do is remove her from her Foreign Affairs Committee assignment, uh, citing that it was uh, conflicted to have someone who expressed anti-Semitic views uh, working on a committee that establishes the, the foreign affairs position of this country. So that occurred this week, and as expected, the vote was uh, solidly along party lines and the opposition was uh, heated and furious from Democratic uh, members of Congress, up to and including uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader. Uh, you can you know, use a search engine of your choice and um, search for you know, Ilhan Omar, or for AOC and you know comments on you know Ilhan Omar's removal, etc. Um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez gave a just fiery rebuttal to the Republicans uh, about the removal, and really laid it uh, out as to how she felt and what she believed that the Republican motive was for removing the congresswoman from her seat. Now, it doesn't mean she's removed from all committees, but it, she is removed from this one. And almost immediately, the uh, minority leader uh, appointed her to the House Budget Committee. So she you know, still will have uh, say and influence on you know, things financial with the United States. In addition to the removal of Representative Omar, uh, Speaker McCarthy also removed uh, Representative Adam Schiff and uh, Representative uh, Swalwell from the Intelligence Committees uh, in a move largely seen as retribution for the removal uh, in the 117th Congress of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar uh, from their committees for uh, violent rhetoric and posts that were considered uh, inconsistent with the decorum of the House, etc. So, you know, the, the new House has started out on the tit for tat, and we will likely see more of that as the next two years progress. Uh, in addition to that, 
the uh, House, uh, among its first orders of business, posted uh, the first section of its legislative agenda. And we'll take a look at what it is that you know the new House under Republican control uh, is going to be undertaking in the coming term. And while it may seem that it's been longer than a month since the 118th Congress took their seats in the House, uh, it has. Uh, as of the airing of this show, it will be almost exactly one month since the 15th vote was conducted and Kevin McCarthy was uh, sworn in as Speaker of the House. Uh, but the ideas and notions of what the Republicans wanted to do was actually uh, pretty well fleshed out ahead of that. Uh, there's an article that came out of the Washington Examiner uh, over the weekend uh, that talks about, uh, and the headline title is, Promises Made, Here's What House Republicans Have Accomplished One Month After Taking the Majority. Um, and the article goes in to talk about how uh, the GOP had high hopes to hit the ground running and quickly start voting on their new bills to advance the agenda. But after uh, the, as I mentioned, the dragged out leadership election and you know the disagreements uh, within the party that have been going on since they took their seats, uh, they actually have made progress on only about half of what they proposed that they wanted to do in the first two weeks. So the article talks about how uh, Steve Scalise, the, the majority leader of the House, uh, released, a, released a list of the top 11 bills and resolutions that the party planned to pass during the first two weeks. And you know, as I said, as of Friday, the Republicans have only passed six of them. You know, their, their quote was, uh, and, and Steve Scalise wrote a letter to the Republican lawmakers back on December 30th, saying, we've made it clear, and this is a quote, that we must change the way we do business in order to approve, improve the legislative process. We also recognize that it will take some time for our committees to organize and start moving legislation through regular order. In the meantime, we'll be bringing uh, up some meaningful, ready-to-go legislation within the House. These common sense measures will adjust, address challenges facing hardworking families on issues ranging from energy, inflation, border security, life, taxpayer protection, and more. So with that high expectation set, um, you know, what we have seen in the first four weeks of the Republican leadership in the House has fallen, uh, in my opinion, well short of those lofty goals uh, mentioned by uh, Congressman Scalise. So what have the Republicans actually accomplished in the first month of their uh, tenure as leading the House of Representatives? Well, one of the things they did, they passed a select committee, and we've just talked about uh, what committees are, on the strategic competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and you know that resolution established the select committee in the lower chamber tasked with investigating the economic and security progress of the Chinese Communist Party in relation to the United States. Uh, the committee has 16 members, and of course uh, the Republicans uh, being the majority in the House, they have the leadership role on that committee. Now, you know, what they are going to dig into in this committee uh, and, you know, what their, their hopeful outcome will be left up to be seen as they get into the work. Um, and, you know, keep in mind that uh, we just have gone through an episode where the CCP uh, apparently flew a surveillance balloon uh, over much of the United States uh, over the past week until it was ultimately shot down by the Air Force uh, out over the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of the Carolinas. Um, the, other, the next 
bill that they passed was called the Family and Small Business Taxpayer Protection Act. And this one uh, was something that the Republicans have been promising for quite a while. Uh, it's uh, going to revoke some monetary payments that were made available through the Inflation Reduction Act. Specifically, the bill blocks most of the $80 billion in spending that was set to go toward the Internal Revenue Service that would have gone toward hiring 87,000 new agency employees. Uh, however, the Republicans were putting out the story that the money would be funding uh, tax enforcement uh, agents uh, and you know hurt the middle-class workers in order to increase revenue for the federal government. Now, nothing in the information uh, in the bill talks about hiring enforcement agents. A lot of that money is going to replace retiring IRS workers. Uh, it's going to replenish the workforce within the infrastructure of the IRS. And only about 2,000 additional agents uh, were expected to be hired. Uh, another that they passed, they, uh, a, a resolution expressing the sense of Congress condemning the recent attacks on pro-life facilities, groups, and churches. Now, this is a, uh, what it is, is a, a sense of Congress uh, bill really is basically uh, a collective statement by the body uh, on, with their opinion on a, a certain topic. And here they are, are condemning the attacks that have been happening on pro-life facilities groups and churches um, now you know note that there's no you know equivalent resolution um, protesting the uh, attacks on the the rights of uh, women to seek you know reproductive care and, and so forth or addressing you know what has been going on in the battle against abortion since the overturn of Roe v. Wade um, another uh, related was they had an act called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And, you know, this was voted on on the same day as the concurrent resolution. Uh, basically, what it is is to uh, increase protections uh, through requiring medical care for uh, infants that are born uh, in a, a failed abortion attempt, uh, and that is that they should be provided equivalent medical care to any other child uh, born alive at the same gestational age. In other words, if a uh, pregnancy is terminated through an abortion or, or attempted to be terminated through an abortion at a certain number of weeks, this this law, if passed and, and signed, would require medical professionals to provide care in order to maintain uh, that infant in an alive state. Now, you know, again, details and, and all of that are not specified in the information that's out there, but you know that's what they are trying to do. Uh, another bill that they have passed is Protecting America's Strategic Petroleum Reserve from China Act. Now, this one uh, is intended to block the sale of oil from the country's Strategic Petroleum Reserve emergency stockpile to China or any entity that is linked to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, further, it requires the Department of Energy to block any of its consumers from exporting the oil to China after purchasing from the U.S. Reserve. Now, you know, again, this is, you know, a, a bill uh, to you know, basically bar oil coming from our reserves going to the People's, to the People's Republic of China. Um, and a uh, concurrent bill, the Strategic Production Response Act, which would uh, set limits on the president's ability to release oil from the strategic reserve and would require the federal government to increase the percentage of federal lands that are leased for oil and gas production 
the Republicans who introduced the legislation argued that it was an urgent policy to help rebuild the emergency stockpile and preserve oil for emergency situations or natural disasters. And, you know, it, it, uh, does, it doesn't talk about the fact that there's already processes in place and in action to replenish oil that has been taken out of the strategic reserve, number one. Uh, and President Biden, in taking the actions, has actually earned money for the United States through the, 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 the purchase and, and sale of oil to and from the reserve. Uh, they don't mention that aspect of it. Uh, so it raises the question on what really is the need other than setting limits on the president's abilities and opening up additional federal lands for drilling, which is something the Republicans have been going after for years. As a side note, that there are um, hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of existing oil leases that have not been exploited on federal lands. Uh, so this is going to add more into that, uh, raising the question of why. All right. Um, so those are the ones that have passed so far. There are still more uh, in the original 11 that are awaiting action. One of these is called the Prosecutors Need to Prosecute Act. Uh, legislation requires state and local prosecutors to report data on how many criminal cases they decline to prosecute, as well as the outcome of cases they choose to execute. Uh, this bill would also mandate prosecutors to, re to report how many cases they are uh, initiating against defendants with a criminal history, as well as the number of defendants who are released or eligible for bail. Uh, again, kind of understand you know, what their intent is there. They, they, they want some more information, um, but they want to codify it into a law that would require prosecutors to do this homework and submit that information uh, and, and not uh, describe, there's no description in the bill that I've seen so far that describes what they want to do with that information, what it will actually feed into. Uh, there is another one that's awaiting action. This one is expressing support for the nation's law enforcement agencies and condemning anti, I mean, any efforts to defund or dismantle law enforcement agencies. Now, this one is following up on the debates and arguments going back and forth between the left and the right over this notion of so-called defunding the police. Now, what this is, is after the George Floyd incident, uh, there was a call to, uh, to take monies away from the police uh, to, uh, you know, to reduce their ability to militarize, that is to buy the surplus military equipment uh, that you see, such as those uh, big Bearcat uh, armored vehicles and, and other equipment. And the, the proponents of this, uh, this attempt or this, this intent uh, was not to defund the police, that is to take the money away from them, but rather to redirect it toward more non-lethal uh, approaches in dealing with the public. And given what we have seen in you know, recent months and years and up to you know, what happened just two weeks ago uh, or three weeks ago with you know, uh, Tyree Nichols, uh, you can see where a, a need exists to uh, de-escalate the approaches taken by uh, traffic police and police officers called to respond to certain domestic violence situations where weapons are not evident. And, you know, this is all something that has been under discussion for, you know, at least the last four years, um, you know, within the government and is something that this legislation would seek to, to bar. So it would take away the ability to condemn the efforts by the police 
uh, or the efforts to defund or dismantle law enforcement agencies. Um, so another one that's awaiting action, the Border and Safety Security Act. So what this one is, is to control the surge of immigrants at the southern border further by giving the Secretary of DHS, Department of Homeland Security, control to bar autonomously immigrants from coming into the country at any point of entry as a way to achieve operational control over the border. Uh, under the less legislation, that decision would be made whenever the secretary determines at their own discretion. So, you know, basically they're saying they want to treat the border as a spigot and be able to open it and turn it off uh, at their will. Uh, another is, and this one, again, related to immigration, uh, the Illegal Alien NICS Alert Act. So this one seeks to require the National Instant Criminal Background Check System to notify Immigration and Customs Enforcement and relevant local law enforcement agencies when an illegal immigrant attempt, attempts to purchase a firearm in the U.S. Uh, the legislation is receiving some pushback from the Second Amendment uh, groups uh, around the country. And what they're saying is that it would be used to empower the FBI to strip gun owners of their firearms, even if they're U.S. citizens, which, uh, given the, the language that I've seen on this, doesn't seem to make a, a direct connection. If you, if you get what I mean. Uh, so the uh, another one that's waiting action, no taxpayer funding for abortion and abortion insurance, full disclosure act. So this one would establish the Hyde Amendment as law, making permanent the provision in appropriations bills that prohibits the use of federal funds to go toward abortions. The bill would provide exceptions in the case of rape, incest, or endangerment to the mother's life, which are exceptions that are already included in the Hyde Amendment. Uh, so this bill has not yet uh, made it to the floor in a vote. So there is, you know, an overview of you know what the Republican leadership in the House um, has done and is seeking to do. Uh, and of course, if you've been following the news, you know that there's a large amount of talk about addressing uh, matters relating to the, the president's son, Hunter Biden, and his laptop. Uh, there are, are loads of uh, concerns with the progress of prosecutions uh, for the January 6th insurrection and all of these things. Now... What is missing in all of these bills that the Republicans say they want to address uh, are bills that deal with some of the problems and issues that face our country and that face our citizens. Uh, you know, there's you know the the education process. There's infrastructure. Now, granted, uh, the Democrats and their um, their infrastructure bills are starting to be executed around the country. And so we're starting to see progress being made uh, on some of these projects. And, you know, that's a good thing. But the Republicans aren't going to talk about that because those are Democratic uh, initiatives and they don't want to give the Democrats credit for anything. So what we what we can see from this, uh, what we can take away from this is, you know, a, as I've said in prior shows, uh, the next two years are going to be at best contentious uh, and at worst and more likely uh, dysfunctional as the Republicans push all of these plans through the House uh, using their majority, uh, but realizing that the Senate is controlled by Democrats and they are not going to move forward, uh, at least the, the early indications are the Democrats are not going to move forward on any of this legislation uh, to advance it to the president's desk for signature. And it related, President Biden has indicated he will veto 
most, if not all, of these bills or any such similar bills that come to his desk uh, that are counter to what his and the Democratic agenda is. So we're going to have the Republicans screaming and shouting at the wind uh, about what they want to get accomplished. And of course, the, the, the closing point here on this segment, of course you realize that anything that the Republicans uh, pass through the House that gets uh, stopped at the Senate level or is vetoed by the president is, is going to become a, a huge talking point as we move up to 2024, which is part of the strategy. The Republicans are clearly looking to energize uh, the conservative and ultra-conservative base, uh, and so they are going to use these uh, bills that they passed through, as they say, regular order through the process, and the Democrats um, have denied going forward as you know, talking points and uh, campaign points going forward into 2024. Uh, so when we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about what we need to do in terms of you know, what this strategy is and what its impact is going to be. And then we're going to devote uh, the balance of the program to discussing what has been coming out of Florida uh, in the recent uh, weeks and months and what Governor Ron DeSantis is doing. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to the Fired Up Podcast on WJMS Media. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Right now, our country feels divided, but there's a place where people are coming together. I got to tell you, I was nervous to talk to someone so different than me. Me too, but I'm glad we are. Love Has No Labels and One Small Step are helping people with different political views, beliefs, and life experiences come together through conversation, and it feels good. Wow, your story is so... uh, Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) When people actually sit down, talk, and listen to one another, they can break down boundaries and connect as human beings. At lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step, you can listen to amazing, life-changing conversations and find simple tools to start a conversation of your own. I know one thing. This conversation gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope, too. Take a step toward bringing our country and your community together by having the courage to start a conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. And welcome back. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. Well, as I said at the top of the show, welcome to Black History Month 2023. We're now entering, at the time of the broadcast of this podcast, the second week of Black History Month. And as as it stands, it seems that we are also in uh, the the time frame of some controversy, not surprising. Uh, And the controversy is arising out of the state of Florida, also not surprising. And the figure at the center of the controversy arising out of the state of Florida is, wait for it, Governor Ron DeSantis. So this week, um, he issued a, uh, a legal guideline that instructs school districts uh, in, in general in the state of Florida to remove or hide books uh, that have not been vetted uh, by the the state uh, to be proper books for uh, elementary school K through 12 grade children, particularly those books that deal with racial equity and diversity uh, themes, uh, as well as books that are uh, that they describe as pornographic, and it uh, seems that. In the mix of those uh, genres, that uh, many books, and according to some articles uh, that I've seen, as many as 200 book titles have been banned because they uh, violate those the tenets I just mentioned, in that they uh, discuss uh, racial equity and diversity from the standpoint that could be 
made to uh, cause some children to uh, be upset with themselves uh, or, you know, their, their environment and so forth, or feel guilty or to feel anxiety about the fact that they are white. Uh, and, you know, it, it is playing into and is uh, underpinned by the ongoing arguments around critical race theory, or CRT, that have been circulating through the conservative landscape here in in the U.S. uh, for the past several years. Now, I'm I'm not going to get into a detailed discussion of what CRT is. I've read the, at least I've read a good chunk of the uh, teaching guideline for the curriculum, and it is definitely not an elementary or junior high school uh, level uh, curriculum. CRT is, was developed and is uh, intended for a college-level uh, class, particularly in uh, areas of law. Uh, it is uh, about uh, what uh, racism and discrimination have meant in this country and what it uh, has done in terms of the influence it has on U.S. law and uh, legal operating practices here in this country. Let me give you a more formal uh, definition. It came out of a, uh, an article from ABC News. Uh, it describes critical race theory as a discipline often taught in graduate schools and higher education that seeks to understand how racism has shaped U.S. laws and how those laws have continued to impact the lives of non-white people, according to scholars of the theory. Now, on the other side of that coin, uh, the people um, that are opposed to CRT are, are stating that, uh, quote, according to Governor DeSantis, no one should be instructed to feel as if they are not equal or shamed because of their race. And he said this in a statement on the signing of his bill. In Florida, we will not let the far-left woke agenda take over our schools and workplaces. There is no place for indoctrination or discrimination in Florida. Now, on the face of it, uh, that last half of uh, the paragraph from DeSantis, DeSantis seems to be you know, contradictory in and of itself. You know, he's he's talking about um, that that no one should feel that they are not equal or shamed because of their race. Um, But yet he has turned it into a political argument when he brings in the far left woke agenda agenda phrase uh, talking about how they are taking over our schools and workplaces. Uh, Then he concludes it with there's no place for indoctrination or discrimination in Florida. Yet, what this bill that he signed and the actions that he's put in place, in one sense, could be construed to be uh, discriminatory uh, and you know indoctrination in the other direction. You know, from from what uh, the the people who uh, support CRT as it's intended. you know, believe. So if you take this outside of the state of Florida, um, you know, and, and if you've listened to news reports uh, in more mainstream media, uh, you'll hear statements like critical race theory is being taught in our elementary uh, and middle schools in this country. Uh, and, you know, there is a very small sliver of truth in in that statement. Um, there are, according to uh, my research, there are 13,452 school districts in the United States of America. Of those, some two dozen, 20, 24, 25 school districts uh, have curriculum that include some elements of what could be called critical race theory. And what do I mean by that? Well, 
critical race theory uh, is a, a course of discipline that studies racism and how it's written into U.S. laws. So if we look back over, you know, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, where you had laws on the books, uh, so-called Jim Crow laws, um, that would meet the definition of what is is talked about in critical race theory. It was a set of laws or uh, a set of uh, racist principles that is exclusion of uh, black people from certain uh, aspects of the American process to it voting, uh, access to uh, equal schools, access to uh, equal accommodation in public places, and so forth, that uh, were actually written into law. That is how critical race describes the, the systemic racism that they talk about, that it is racist actions that are part of the mainstream systems of operation that occurred in our country back in those times, and some would argue still in effect today. Um, what we get to when we, we look at how this uh, critical race theory uh, argument has manifested itself, uh, it really has become uh, something, in, in my opinion, and, you know, full caveat here, I'm, I am not a CRT scholar, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm basing this on information that I have gathered through my reading uh, over, you know, the, the last uh, eight to ten months. Um, it, it is something that it is hard for certain individuals to argue that um, the United States of America is not, in some form or fashion, a racist country. Now, what do I mean by that? Okay, taking into account the fact that I am an African-American male and I grew up uh, in the uh, 60s and 70s at the height of the civil rights movement. So I saw and I witnessed uh, via you know, television, the news, and you know, just my own eyes, I saw the effects of what the struggle for civil rights uh, and equal rights uh, was doing back in the day. Now, contrast that with someone who is uh, white, who perhaps grew up in the same time frame, uh, they may not have seen all of the same things that I saw. So they would have a different set of opinions. Uh, and it is in this yin-yang kind of uh, back and forth uh, sense that we find ourselves. Those that have experienced uh, the, the sting of discrimination uh, in, in some form or fashion in their lives have a expected set of responses to it. Those that have not or those that have existed in, uh, air quotes here, a world of privilege, uh, they have a different perspective on it. You know, so it, it all depends on how you grew up, where you grew up, and what was going on at the time. Suffice to say that this argument is, you know, driving a lot of uh, legislation and legal action, particularly on the conservative side, as they seek in, in their mind, and this is my opinion again, to rein in uh, what they see as this uh, trend toward uh, more uh, expansive discussions of diversity and equity and, and racial equality. Uh, to the point where their feelings are that it is impacting their children from the standpoint of making them feel, uh, quote, inferior, quote, to people of color, simply because of the color of their skin. Now, magnify that and, you know, turn it around uh, 
mix it in with uh, people who are you know of the you know far right conservative uh, side of the the ledger, um, the the individuals that have a tendency to be supportive of you know MAGA principles and and other related uh, theories, and you now have the mix for the kinds of battles that we have seen transpire over the last um, six, eight, ten years. Now, the final piece uh, of this um, ramble that I'm going on, and you're probably asking, where am I going with this? Um, Ultimately, we're going to end up in Florida, uh, just spoiler alert, is, you know, has to do with where you grew up, what your environment is, uh, which drastically shapes your perspective when you look at the kind of uh, things that are going on in today. Uh, you, you have to view it through the lens of what you knew, what you know, how you grew up, what you were exposed to, your environment. And, you know, just by way of example, really quickly, um, I grew up in a suburb uh, of New York. Uh, it was a very racially mixed town, and you know, keep in mind that I grew up in the 1960s and 70s, uh, and you know, our high school was just about 50-50 between black and white, and we didn't have the kind of uh, racial problems that we saw, you know, each night on the, the nightly news during the height of the civil rights movements, with what was going on down south and and so forth. Um, you know, and then contrast that with my ex-wife who grew up in Boston and uh, in order for her to go to school each day, uh, they would leave their community, which was mostly black, and go to high school in the mostly white section of Boston, uh, South Boston. And, you know, every day as they were leaving their community, they would have to get on the floor of the bus because there were lines of people throwing rocks and bottles and cursing and, and spitting and so forth. That's how she went to school every day. So, you know, her perspective on the relationship between blacks and whites was drastically different than mine. And, you know, it's the subject of many discussions and debates between the two of us. Now, this all goes, and, and uh, I'm trying to tie this all together, is as we look at the arguments that are going around, you know, critical race theory and you know, whether or not uh, America is a uh, racist country, uh, it's all going to depend on your perspective. And your perspective is shaped by your environment and your environment is the world that you grew up in and so forth. Now, I say all of that to you know, tie it back to what uh, Governor DeSantis uh, has been doing and is doing in the state of Florida and by example for other areas of the country which are looking carefully at how this works in Florida to see if it can be replicated in other places. What you find is Governor Governor DeSantis is uh, on, on a campaign to soften uh, to, um, to gray out some areas of uh, the racial strife that our country has gone through, uh, through the 60s, into the 70s, uh, even, even before that. Uh, keep in mind that, you know, and, and I, I say this to, you know, any Republicans that are listening, particularly any uh, conservative uh, Republicans listening, and to Governor DeSantis, uh, keep in mind that uh, in the time frame between, you know, the, the early 1600s when uh, enslaved Africans were brought to this country in 1865 when President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, that in most areas of the South, including Florida, it was uh, not only frowned upon, it was illegal to teach uh, slaves uh, the, the slave populations to read uh, because the, you know, the slaves were property. 
they were, as defined in the Constitution, you know, three-fifths of uh, a human, three-fifths of, you know, the value of a white person. And the recognition was that because the slave population or the enslaved population uh, outnumbered the, uh, the white property owners of the time, that they needed ways to limit their power, limit their, um, their uh, self-courage and so forth. Uh, so, you know, lack of, of the ability to read was considered crucial to that. I mean, knowledge is, in fact, power. So what transpired during those, um, those you know, 300 years uh, was a clandestine effort by the uh, enslaved people to self-teach themselves to read. Uh, this is a well-known and well-documented uh, fact that there were these clandestine meetings uh, that were held where slaves would gather and learn to read. Uh, and, and my understanding is they used the Bible to do it because it was the most prevalent book available at the time. So by Governor DeSantis taking these efforts to restrict uh, the literature that's available, even you know though I, I agree that age appropriateness of the material is an important factor in this, um, it, it is clear that uh, it, it is a, a practice that will lend itself for people to find ways around it, just as the enslaved people of the 1600s, 1700s, and early 1800s did as they went on their journey toward knowledge. So what you will you know, obviously see and what, what can, can transpire and probably will transpire is that the families of these affected students, uh, particularly, you know, the ones of color and, and poor, uh, will find ways to read the materials that they cannot obtain uh, through the school system or through the library system because the state has established these, these boundaries uh, over what they can and cannot access. So, you know, it, it is clear that you know, this is not something that is, in my opinion, going to be a, a severe restriction on the information going out. Keep in mind, we just came off, you know, two and a half years of pretty much homeschooling uh, all of the elementary and uh, middle and, and high school students uh, in the country due to COVID. So the mechanisms are in place for information to, uh, to be obtained in the home you know, through electronic means, through the internet and through, you know, laptops and computers and tablets and smartphones. So, you know, the, the, the effort that is being taken to restrict the provision of, you know, this information in these books uh, is, is one that has, you know, a major flaw in it in that the modern technology of the day uh, will allow a way to circumvent uh, many, if not all, of those restrictions. Uh, and you know, in in keeping in mind the you know the banning of books, as it were, you know, there's an article that uh, talks about there are 200 books banned in Florida. Uh, the article you know looks at it from the perspective of booksellers, bookstores. And, you know, they, they list uh, many, many titles, a lot of which um, are ones that uh, have not just uh, racial backgrounds or, or discussions from the standpoint of one racial minority or another, but they also have uh, a lot of backgrounds from the LGBTQ community. Uh, and, you know, these books uh, in, in some cases, um, I, I, you have to admit when you look at the list and you look at the types of books and what their content is, yes, there are some objectionable themes in there in terms of, um, you know, sexual practices and, and other things. But for the most part, 
they are books designed to paint a picture of you know a a group of people through reading certain constituencies uh including you know some parents and uh some educators and particularly some legislators uh find to be objectionable and have taken it upon themselves to uh to work to shield uh young children from uh this type of material now i support the notion of keeping materials that are uh, pornographic or, you know, descriptive of other uh, elements of human uh, endeavor that are not age appropriate for, you know, elementary school, uh, middle school, and and in some cases, even junior high school. Um, I don't think that it is wrong to shield our children from, you know, that type of material. Uh, what I do think is is incorrect and is wrong is in that net of sweeping up those objectionable books that we sweep up other books that teach uh, much necessary views of of our history uh, of where we come from. Remember, I said it's about environment and, you know, what uh, lessons we can learn from that. And, you know, the, the idea that in sweeping up these objectionable books, that you sweep up books that uh, are, are not objectionable, but maybe controversial. Uh, otherwise, you know, they, they might be suitable for specific age groups. I don't have, you know, as a, as a parent, uh, as a grandparent, I don't have a problem with protecting our young people from things they are not of a level of maturity to be able to to handle. Uh, I think that is that is a critically important job. I also believe that it is the primary job of parents to make sure that they are you know that they are engaged with their their children's teachers that they are engaged with the school systems to learn and to be familiar with what uh, their children are being taught. Now, having said that, I think that in many instances, what we're seeing is that some of these parent groups, and you know, I, I can't say for everywhere in the country, for all 13,400 13, some odd school districts out there, that they're all you know, doing the same thing. But looking at what's going on in Florida, and seeing as you know it could be an example or at least a marker as to what the potential is i think we you know we all need to take a step back take a breath and you know apply some some critical thinking about what what is being done how it's going to impact our children and working with our teachers and our school boards and our administrators to make sure that we are finding the the most effective way of conveying the principles we need to convey while protecting our our youngest people protecting you know our our children our babies from things that they are not prepared to handle so my my message um, to Governor DeSantis and, you know, by extension, other governors who are looking at what he is undertaking to see if they can apply it in their state. Um, my message to you is one to, you know, tread cautiously. Um, think it, think it through one more time before you, you put that legislature legislation out there rather. Uh, realize that you know there it, it's not going to be perfect that there are ways for young people to get the information they seek uh, and unless you're going to you know ban um, you know Google or ban you know whatever um, and take away you know people's access to uh, audible and, and other sources of literature that you know it it's still going to be a problem 
Uh, and to to the parents out there, while you know the the positive element of being you know intimately involved with your child's education is of course the goal of every parent. Uh, turning it into a political battle, turning it into an ideological battle, uh, or just turning it into a flat-out battle, a brawl, uh, really doesn't serve your overall purpose. Uh, you know, we need to encourage our young people uh, to develop their curious minds. We need to in- encourage them to uh, learn what is right and what is wrong and how to tell the difference. And, you know, basically we need to do what we can to give them the tools of critical thinking that allow them to, you know, see information or to read information and to properly assess it for someone at their age level uh, to, to get to the ideas that are trying to be conveyed. Uh, I, I think if we can get to that aspect of it, that uh, things will work themselves out, uh, you know, then and finally, I would add the notion that um, holding teachers and administrators accountable through the use of, you know, a, a felony uh, charge and potential conviction with fines and jail time. Uh, serves as a disincentive uh, to uh, a group of people whose primary goal is to educate our children uh, on our behalf, you know, following the guidance that we give them through our school committees. So there's a lot to think about with this. Uh, We will keep an eye on the progress of this law, particularly when you know the the I guess the first cases are brought into the legal system from it because there undoubtedly will be um, and you know finally you know what are your thoughts I'd love to know what you think about the the laws passed in Florida and critical race theory in general uh, and you know where this is going you know what is this going to accomplish send an email to the show at uh, fired up radio at yahoo.com and give me your thoughts. I'd love to hear what you think of what's going on. Uh, and to that end, I look forward to seeing your emails, uh, to seeing your comments and, you know, having further discussions. So that's going to do it for this edition of fired up. As always, I thank you so much for listening and I hope that, you know, you and your families will stay safe. Uh, make sure you take care of yourselves with the this new COVID variant that's raging across the country. And, you know, I look forward to your emails. I look forward to uh, another show coming up. And, you know, with that in mind, I will see you all again and we will talk in seven days. Mm-hmm.